Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me here that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, a lot of you know that right before Christy and I came here, we were living in Pittsburgh, uh, and at the church I was at, I started out there as the associate pastor. Uh, that, was a, that was what I was called there to be. Uh, and yet after just two years of being there, the senior pastor left for another church, and so I ended up sliding into his role. And now apparently that was supposed to be excited, exciting. People would come up to me, they'd always say, congratulations! And yet all I remember is I was incredibly nervous. Uh, the thing is, I had only ever been an associate at that point. And so becoming a senior pastor was just kind of intimidating. 
So one day I was talking to our youth director about this. His name was Colin. He and I had become good friends. And so I was telling him that I was kind of nervous. And he goes, I'll never forget it. He says, Garrett, it's just going to be fine. All you got to remember is you're just a tool. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, being a tool is not a good thing. (laughs) And I'll totally concede, maybe I am a tool. (laughs) And yet what I think he was getting at, and what I wish he would have said, is that you are just an instrument. Uh, Meaning when it comes to the Christian life, it's not really about you and your abilities. It's rather about Jesus and his ability to use you. So today we're in week four of this Epiphany sermon series. We're calling it Saving Realizations. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at different epiphanies people have throughout the Bible. And in particular, it is people coming to the realization of who Jesus is. So we started with the Magi. That was week one, if you're with us. Uh, Then we had Nathaniel. That was week two. And then last week we had all of the disciples. And so we've been looking at each of these different epiphanies. And yet one thing we haven't said about this is every time someone has an epiphany about Jesus, they always then become an instrument of Jesus. Meaning the Lord begins to use them to accomplish his purposes. And so one thing about this, just to be clear, it's not just pastors. It's every single believer. We are meant to be instruments that God uses to point people to Christ. So today, we're looking at the Apostle Paul. That was what our reading just was. And one thing about Paul is he went from, be, from being maybe the biggest adversary of the Christian movement to maybe the greatest proponent of its advancement. And you see, the reason for that is he went from totally misunderstanding the will of God. And in particular, he went from totally misunderstanding the person and work of Jesus to totally getting it. And so the question we've been asking each week is, how does that happen? If we go to the passage, the way that it starts out, Paul's on his way to Damascus, and the reason for that is he's going to go root out all of the Christians there. That was kind of his job. He thought the Christian movement was incredibly destructive. He thought they all got it wrong, and so he wanted to root them out of the culture. He's on his way to Damascus to do precisely that, and yet all of a sudden it's just boom, right? Uh, something hits him. And it is from that one unpredictable, inexplicable moment, everything begins to change for him. Now, just to state something obvious about it, it's an encounter with Christ that he is having, right? It says that in the passage. But the thing about it, that's perhaps less obvious, is it is not necessarily instantaneous for him. Meaning not everything happens at once. Instead, in the passage, it has very distinct steps by which Paul becomes this incredible instrument of God. So I want to go through each of the steps. Just to start with the first one. How did Paul become such an instrument of God? Uh, So my first year of college, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I lived in a suite with seven other guys. Uh, I was at USC that one year, and one of the guys in our suite, this guy's name was Reed. Reed was from Hawaii. And one of the things Reed tried to do, our first semester there, is he tried to be what he deemed more efficient with his sleep patterns. And by more efficient, what he meant is he was going to try to sleep just every other night instead of every night. Uh, The way he thought this would work, he thought it would work, really, uh, that on the nights that he did sleep, he would sleep 
12 to 14 hours total. So in his mind, right, uh, that would average out to about six to seven hours a night. Just that it'd be combined, two nights would be combined into one. Uh, seems logical, I guess. Maybe all you UCLA people are now gloating over your superior intelligence. <laughs> uh, so we're living in the suite together, and whereas this guy Reed is claiming that his newfound approach to sleep is totally working for him, every time we walk by the common area, he's totally passed out on the couch. And so one of our roommates, his name was Noah, and this one day he goes over to Reed, shakes him awake, and he goes, Reed, what are you doing? And I remember Reed looks at him and goes, you just don't get it, man. I'm a contrarian. Meaning, I have my own way of life, right? And Noah goes, Reed, you're not a contrarian. You're just an idiot. <laughs> uh, so that experiment lasted about three months, believe it or not. At, reach at which point, this guy, Reed, was a total zombie. Uh, he was sleeping just about everywhere you found him. In fact, he ended up failing a bunch of his classes. It was a total disaster. Uh, so one thing we just know about the human body or you could even say one thing we just know about the physical world as a whole is it works a particular way. It's designed a particular way, and you can try to go against it, and yet it's never really going to work out for you. So here's the thing about that. In the Bible, they took it for granted that the same thing was also true of the spiritual world. Uh, that not just our bodies, but also our spirits are designed a particular way, uh, that God has a will for us that is just as much built into the grain of the universe as things like the law of gravity or the laws of human physiology, that God's will for our life is just as real and unchangeable. And so, yeah, we can try to go against it, and yet it's not going to work for us. So if we go into our passage, one of the first things Christ says to Paul is, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's kind of a weird saying to us. But what it is, it's an agricultural reference. And in particular, a goad is just a piece of wood with a pointed end. It was kind of a long, narrow piece of wood, pointed end. And so what a farmer would do is he would put the pointed end against the back of the ox. And he would literally poke and prod the ox with it. He'd keep it held against his skin in order to get it to move in the right direction. And yet the thing about oxen is a lot of them are kind of stupid and stubborn. And so if the ox was not having it, it would try to kick back against the goads. Like, get off me. It didn't want to listen to the farmer. It wanted to go its own way. And yet whenever it tried that, the goads would just dig into it deeper, right? They're pushing back against it. And so literally, fighting against the will of the farmer would end up causing a lot of unnecessary pain. When Christ says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, what he is essentially is, you are fighting against my will for you. And it's causing you a lot of unnecessary pain. In other words, my will is built into the grain of the universe. You can try to go against me, and that's precisely what you're doing. And yet what I'm telling you right now, Paul, is it is not working. This self-willed life that you're living, this self-willed life that you and I often try to live, it doesn't work. And don't get me wrong, we might make it look like it's working out just fine. That's what Paul was doing. 
and yet it's not working out just fine. I think we all know areas of our life where we're kicking against the goads of God's will, and even though it gives us maybe superficial pleasures, deep down it is really unpleasant to be misaligned with the will of God. And so the first part of Paul's epiphany is what he has been doing is just not working. Let's go to the second part. A few weeks ago, we sang a song at worship. I think the title, I might have it wrong, but I think the title was All to Jesus, I Surrender. Was it All to Jesus, I Surrender? I think it was the outdoor service, I don't remember. Uh, but part of the refrain, remember that, we sing, I surrender all. It's like this beautiful refrain, right? And so this past week, a few of us were talking about it in the church office, and we were saying if we were going to be honest when we sang our worship songs, it would have to go, I surrender some, <laughs> Right? The point being, it's not exactly easy, nor is it very common, to just surrender everything to the will of Jesus. And yet, in our passage, that is precisely what Paul does. You see, one of the first things he says to Jesus is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Which means, I totally surrender my life. Whatever you want, that's what I want to. But here's the thing about that. The reason he can do that, the reason he totally surrenders, isn't because he has somehow mustered up the willpower to do it. And in fact, if we're trying to muster up the willpower to surrender to Jesus, it will never happen. You see, the reason Paul surrenders is in his mind, he has no other options. What I mean by that is he is, in fact, totally blind at this point. And so how are you going to navigate your life if you can't see where to go? In other words, the fact that he can't see means he has to listen to Jesus, right? So this past week, I came across this article called The Benefits of Blindness. Sounds like kind of a bizarre title. And yet the author of the article, who had himself gone blind was pointing out a number of advantages he had discovered about it. And one thing in particular stood out to me. He has a long list, but one stood out to me. He said that by losing his sense of sight, all of a sudden he absolutely had to start listening. He had to get in tune with his ears. And what he said about that is for maybe the first time in his life, he really started hearing the world around him. So if we go back to the passage when Paul goes blind, it's Christ himself who's blinded him. It's like, why would you do that? That seems mean, right? And yet the reason Christ blinded him is he wanted Paul to start listening. Get in tune with his ears. And you see, for maybe the first time in his life, Paul started hearing the Lord who was around him. Now the thing is, when Paul goes blind, that's not just a literal thing that's happened. I don't doubt that it happened literally, uh, but it's also incredibly symbolic. You see, throughout the Bible, being able to see is a typical metaphor for being someone who is wise. That's what it means to be able to see. You're a wise person. In fact, in a lot of ancient literature, uh, someone who is wise is referred to as a seer. You've seen that word, S-E-E-R, a seer. And to be a seer means you have a good understanding. You don't have to listen to other people. You know how to navigate your life. And you see, that was always Paul's perception of himself. 
He thought he could see. He thought he understood things. He thought he was a pretty righteous person. He believed he had a good moral compass. He thought he was a pretty good decision maker. He stood for the right things. He was on the right side of history. He knew exactly what was right and what was wrong. So all the way up to this moment, Paul thought, I can totally see. And yet all of a sudden he can't. He cannot navigate his own life. And in fact, what he is realizing is that has always been the case. He made decisions that he thought were good, but turned out to be foolish. He had ways of thinking that he thought were right, turned out to be wrong. He had patterns of life that he figured were totally fine. But in the end, those patterns were anything but fine. And so when, the, when he says to Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now the reason he's able to so radically surrender is that he has realized how blind he really is. Now that he does not really know how to live his life. And if he keeps to try to keep doing it on his own, he will just end up in an even bigger mess than he's in right now. And so that's the second part of his epiphany. Not only has he been making a mess of things by kicking against the goads of God's will, but he also doesn't know how to fix it. Seeing as how he can't really see. So his epiphany is that he has to surrender. Lord, what do you want me to do? Let's go to the next part. Now, so for Paul, what he's doing now, he's listening to Christ. That's going to lead him to the last part of his epiphany, right? And before we go there, I want you to imagine something. It's going to kind of illustrate it. I want you to imagine that you're hitting the ripe old age of 60. Didn't say, I think they say 60 is the new 40, yeah? Um, whereas typically at 60, so typically at 60, you have a lot of life left to live. At this point, you've really kind of destroyed your health. You've secretly smoked a pack a day for the past 40 years. So your lungs, they are totally wrecked. You've also been a quiet but heavy abuser of alcohol. So now you have cirrhosis of the liver. You've never really eaten well. You've never really been active. Your heart is in horrible shape. And so at this point, whereas you should have a lot of life left ahead of you, you have just two to three years left to live. And it's crushing, right? You don't want to die. You want to be a grandparent, you want to reach retirement, do things you always wanted to do that you've been putting off. And so you wish you could change your past. You wish you had lived your life differently. You wish you had changed your habits when you still had time. And yet at this point, you can't go back and fix it. You see, here's what happens. You meet this doctor. Other people had told you about him that he's amazing. And the thing about him is he's not only able to prolong your life a little, He's actually able to go back into your past life and undo all the damage you have done. In fact, he's unlike any other doctor. Most doctors just try to ameliorate the bad effects of your decisions. This one's actually able to use those bad decisions to give you even greater health than you would have had had you never made those decisions in the first place. It's weird. He can literally use all of your past folly and failure to make you even healthier and more whole than had you never messed up. And so what he does is he comes to you and he's not going to charge a thing. So totally free and he completely heals every 
bad decision you have ever made. Totally healed. So instead of two to three years left to live, you find that you are more alive now than you have ever been. So let me ask you, what would you say about that doctor? How would you feel about him? In our passage, when Paul finally surrenders his life to Christ, what you see is Christ orchestrates everything for the salvation of Paul. Everything's orchestrated for it. He leads him to the city of Damascus. He orchestrates a meeting there with a man named Ananias. And what Ananias does is first he lays his hands on Paul. And you see in the Bible, laying your hands on someone was always an act of healing. Not just in the physical sense, but in the sense of God is taking every bit of your past folly and failure and he is using it to make you healthy and whole. He is actually undoing all the damage that you have done. And so what immediately happens is something like scales fall from Paul's eyes, which means Jesus is giving Paul new sight. Remember that Paul had just realized that he was blind, so he did not know how to navigate his life. And so now what this is saying is when you listen to the voice of Christ, he will navigate your life. He'll guide you. He'll help you to see things clearly. He will make you much wiser than you ever were before. And so Paul's getting a new vision, and you see then he gets baptized, which means he's getting a new life. You could even say he's getting a new identity. That's what baptism is. It's an identity thing. He's no longer defined by his folly or failure. Instead, he's defined by God's grace and his goodness. And so overall, what has happened in Paul's life is he has encountered the great physician. And just to put this out there, what do you think Paul would say about this Jesus? How would he feel about him, right? The way, to, the way that he felt and what he went on to say over and over again is that this Jesus is incredibly gracious. That his will for you is incredibly good. That he came into the world not to condemn sinners, but to save them. Not to ruin our life, but to make it abundant. To open our eyes, to give us new life, a new chance. To do all these things, not because we deserve them. Not because we earn them, but because he is God and God is love. That was the last part of Paul's epiphany. Namely, that this Jesus was a lot better than he ever thought. And so for the rest of his life, Paul was an instrument of God's grace, pointing everyone to the Savior whose glory he had seen in the humble face of Jesus Christ. So just one last thing, I'm trying to wrap this up. This is going to be, they always say like, don't mix your metaphors. I'm totally going to mix my metaphors, uh, but I want you to imagine you're starting an orchestra. So no longer are you sick, now you're the conductor of an orchestra, whatever. Uh, and this orchestra is going to play the most beautiful music the world has ever seen. And so you go into this music room, it has a ton of instruments laying all over the place, right? And in particular, on top of one of the tables, you look there, it's a collection of these beautiful, shiny instruments. Every single one of them looks like it is in tip-top shape. 
They all look really new. They look exactly like what a great orchestra would have. And so those catch your eye first. But you see, but you see then you look down, and down below the table, tucked into the corner, there's a jumbled pile of other instruments. They're pretty much the opposite of the ones sitting on top of the table. They look like they're in pretty bad shape. They're all a little dirty, cobwebs all over them. It looks like they've probably never been polished. A lot of them, if not all of them, have broken parts. And so you look at the instruments on the top of the table, and then you look at the ones down below. And I just want you to think about this. If you're the conductor of that orchestra, which instruments would you choose? Perfect, polished, and pretty? Beat up, broken, and bad? It's kind of an easy answer in my mind. If you want to play beautiful music, you're going to choose the perfect, polished, and pretty one. And yet, here's the thing about that. Not the Lord. It's not what he does. You see, what he loves doing is taking the beat up, broken, and bad instruments and using precisely those to play his music. And the reason for that is, first of all, he has an inexplicable affection for those instruments. He loves to play the ones with broken parts. And secondly, when he plays them, other people realize that it is not the instruments that have redeemed themselves. but rather the conductor who has done something amazing with them. And the goal of that, the end game, is perhaps other instruments will realize that even if they are broken, that they too can join the song. You see, the most beautiful music the world has ever heard is a life that has been broken and yet redeemed by the grace of God. And that was precisely the case of Paul. And yet it wasn't meant to be just Paul. And so if it's hard to keep kicking against the goads, and you really do need to just surrender, right? You can't see where to go. Have you realized that if and when you do, the will of Jesus will never be a constraint or a frustration, but only a joy and a freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, uh, that by his grace we can be free, and that we can have a new life, that he can make, us some, he can make something great, out of the mess that we ourselves have made. Uh, Father God, we thank you for that, even as we pray that it would be more of a reality for us. God, help us to realize how dumb it is to keep kicking against your will. It's not working. How blind we can be, how foolish, and yet how good Christ is. And, yet, and how wise it is to just listen to him. We pray for that epiphany in his name. Amen.